Thanks for being here. Good morning to you. It's a great time to be a Bible-believing Christian, as always, but even more so with the tremendous amount of scientific uh, evidence that we have that totally backs up Scripture. There is no conflict between science and Scripture, and I'm going to just get into that here. So, uh, I think this slide is appropriately, super appropriate for today, uh, with this heat wave that we're having here. And so we're like a bunch of fish in that little glass there, uh, trying to stay cool here. So, the battle is not between scripture and science. That's a false argument that the evolutionists try to get people to go down that path. That, that's not the case at all. It is a battle between two belief systems, one based on man's ever-changing opinion. Evolution is a belief system. It is not science. It actually violates many of the laws of science. But on the other hand, we have God's Word, which is unchanging, always the solid foundation that we can uh, live upon. And then there are presuppositions, lots of presuppositions that are used to interpret the evidence. Why is that? It's because we're dealing with the past when we're talking about origins issues, and we weren't there. We weren't observing it. Well, we do have God's Word, the eyewitness, who was there, who was doing it, who told us what he did in his Word. But the evolutionists deal with presuppositions. That was they, they assume, they make assumptions about the past in order to be able to interpret the evidence that we have in the present time. And then science properly interpreted does confirm scripture, because after all, the author of the word and the author of the world is one and the same, and he does not contradict himself. So there are many unstated assumptions in evolution. Uh, you could even say several, but many. One assumption is this idea called uniformitarianism. The root of that word is uniform, meaning the same. And this concept that uh, the evolutionists employ is that everything that has been going on in the past, all physical processes, have always been going on at the same rate in the past at which we observe them today. So let's just say, for example, let's just say that there's an inch, this is just arbitrary, an inch of uh, erosion out of the Grand Canyon each year, then they assume it's been an inch of erosion out of the Grand Canyon forever in the past, every year, one inch. That's uniformitarianism, and they apply that to everything, including radioactive decay, accumulation of salt in the oceans, and many, many, many other things. Another assumption is materialism. This is that matter and energy is all that there is, all that exists. There is nothing supernatural. In other words, no God of the Bible. The age of the earth is an absolutely crucial point because the evolutionists understand better than most Christians that if you can cause doubt, about that first chapter of Genesis and regarding the age of the earth, then why bother with the rest of the book? And so it really is a shame when Christians allow themselves to be compromised in the belief of the age of the earth, the universe, uh, because then that shakes the whole foundation. 
Because the real issue is the authority of Scripture. That's the bottom line issue. Do we really take God's authority as the author of Scripture as truth, unchangeable, unshakable, or not? Well, as we discuss any topic in this whole realm of origins, issues, creation, and evolution, there are three simple questions that you need to remember if you're talking about this with anybody. And you really don't need to know a whole lot about anything. Honestly, you don't. What you do need to know are these three questions to ask the other person. Just ask them, how do you know? How do you know what it is that you say that you believe? Was it that some teacher told you, you read it in the book, you saw it in the movie? How do you know this? Do you really know it? Or is it just something that's, that was relayed to you? What evidence do you have is the second question. In other words, okay, you say you believe this particular thing. Show me the evidence that backs it up. Or is this just hearsay that you're telling me? So how do you know? What evidence do you have? And then that third question is, what assumptions have been made? Because the assumptions change everything in how you interpret what's going on or what went on in the past. So these three questions, it doesn't matter what the topic is. All you got to do is remember these three questions to ask them. And, and the purpose of these is to get the other person to realize that they're dealing with belief. They're not dealing with actual fact or truth. They're just dealing with belief. And to get them to realize that evolution is a belief system. It's a faith system. So it's really a battle between two faith systems. That's pretty simple. Okay, we can go home now. That's it. All right? So if you remember these three questions, that's all you really need to know. And you don't even know, need to know the answers to them on that particular topic. I mean, it's nice if you do, because that way you can actually help convince the person that they need to really look at what they're thinking. All right. So the first of the five topics in this five impossible questions for evolutionists is where did matter come from? All right, where did matter come from? Well, here we have these uh, astronomers playing a joke on the guy. They put the marker on the eyepiece of the telescope, so he got a black eye here. Okay. All right. Well, the Big Bang. Evolutionists love to talk about the Big Bang. But the problem is the Big Bang doesn't talk about where the matter and energy came from. It's after the stuff gets there that they want to talk about. So the question is, you ask them, well, where did it come from? And then how do you know? Well, the answer is impossible. They, they cannot know. So here's this all big complicated stuff we don't need to waste time on, because it's all fiction. Well, um, there's this group of scientists who in 2004, there were 33 of them initially, who wrote this open letter to the scientific community. And they put this on the internet and said, essentially, the Big Bang is dead. 
guys, this doesn't work because you have to make too many assumptions that don't fit the data, that don't fit the physics, the actual science. And so uh, since then, an additional 500 and some scientists, in other words, these are all astronomers, cosmologists, people who study origins issues, have all signed on. These are secular guys. Okay, these are not Christians. These are secular scientists who said the Big Bang is dead. And so uh, if you want to see it for yourself, there's the uh, website that you can go to and read the actual letter. But they say, in essence, that there are too many Band-Aids put on the theory and then Band-Aids put on the Band-Aids because they have to keep dealing with the issues that what's observed, what we really see, is not compatible with the Big Bang Theory. So, you know, out of The Wizard of Oz, there's that song, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. Well, this is Ding Dong, The Big Bang is Dead. Well, as we look at where this stuff actually came from, there's only three possibilities. The universe created itself. It's always existed. Or it was created by an outside force. So let's take a look at the universe created itself. Well, can something create itself before it exists? And the answer obviously is no. It cannot create itself before it exists. Then you can rephrase this, can nothing create something? Because this is what they're saying in essence, that nothing created something. Well, there's a fancy way of saying this in Latin, ex nihilo nihil fit, from nothing, nothing comes. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. How many of you have seen the movie The Sound of Music? Let me see. Okay, most everybody has seen that movie. Well, there's a scene in the movie where the two of them are singing their love to each other, Maria and the captain, and, and she says, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Well, if a Broadway lyricist can get it right, anybody can get it right. So the universe cannot have created itself. So that eliminates that possibility. What about the universe has always existed? Well, let's take a look at this one. The universe cannot be infinite with no beginning or it would have already run out of energy. So let me give you an example here. So on this graph, we have time uh, at the bottom going to the right and then the energy of the universe. Well, that dotted line at the top represents the total energy in the universe, total energy and matter, because matter and energy are interconvertible. Well, the first law of thermodynamics, and thermodynamics just simply means heat motion, states that neither energy nor matter can be created nor destroyed. And you may remember that from school. Neither energy nor matter can be created nor destroyed. So that's why there's that dotted line at the top going straight across that the total amount of energy and matter is constant. Doesn't change. And what we observe on this curved line is the amount of energy that is available to do work is decreasing. 
So what this means with time is more and more of the energy is not still available to do work. Okay, that's the second law of thermodynamics, that the amount of, en of energy available to do work is decreasing. Total amount of energy is the same. So you're driving your red-hot Mustang down the road. You're burning up gasoline, so that's energy stored in molecules, chemical energy, converting it into mechanical energy to push the car down the road. And when you finish your, your speedy trip down the freeway, you get out, and what don't you do? You don't put your hand on the hood, because it's too doggone hot, right? So because the system of burning that gasoline is not 100% efficient, in other words, not all of that chemical energy becomes mechanical energy, a lot of heat is given off. Well, that heat dissipates. Well, it goes into the air, to the atmosphere, and out into the universe, into the cosmos. So that energy still exists, but it's not any longer available, capturable, to do work. So that's how you can understand that the, even though the total amount of energy stays the same, the amount available for work, the amount we can capture to do work, is decreasing. Well, if you go forward in time, you see that that dotted line in the future will eventually go down to zero, that the amount of energy available to do work will be zero because it will all equilibrate in the entire universe, and that is termed heat death. Um, because the energy, the heat, is all dissipated. I like to think of it as a cold death because <laughs> it gets doggone cold when you don't have the energy to capture kind of the opposite of today, right? So if you take that curve backwards, you then see that since the universe is winding down going forward, in the past it had to have been wound up. There had to be a beginning point, just like with a, you know, a, a spring activated clock, like a grandfather clock, you know, you have to wind it up to keep it going. So the universe had to have been wound up in the past. Nobody can argue with this. These, these are the two most basic laws of all of science. Nobody has ever found an exception to these two laws of thermodynamics, the first two laws of thermodynamics. So this is concrete, observational evidence that the universe had to have had a beginning. It cannot have always been going on in the past. The energy already would have run down and we wouldn't be here. Is that, is that clear? <laughs> Cowboy Bob, I don't see a response here. Yes, it's clear. Okay. All right. So, that means that the universe has always existed is not a possibility. That only leaves the third possibility, that the universe was created. And we have Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So that's when all the matter and energy came into being, was with him speaking into existence by the power of his word. 
and it's given to us in that verse, the very most foundational verse of all of Scripture, the very first one. So it all goes back to that verse. So we have a very clear explanation for the origin of the universe. The evolutionists do not. They only want to talk about after the Big Bang, not before, where the stuff to go bang with came from. All right? And that's not all that complicated, is it, folks? Okay, so that's how you can discuss that. Well, then someone may say, well, who made God? Well, there's two possibilities. A regression of gods back to the all-powerful God. So we can say God E was made by D, was made by C, by B, by God A. All right? That's one thought that some people might have. Well, it's really the one God who created everything, the God of the Bible. And so let's use the principle of Occam's razor, which is the simplest explanation is almost always the right one. And that would be just the one true God. And we have it in verse in Isaiah 46.9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So he's saying, I'm it, folks. Okay, so there is no succession of gods. All right, so that's, that's the total uh, portion here on the origin of the universe, energy and matter, where did it come from? Second question, where did first life come from? All right, so the scientist is looking through the microscope and he says, now the bacteria are spelling out, we know how proteins and DNA arose. All right, so let's go to something that is in all of the textbooks, all of the biology and chemistry textbooks, the Miller-Urey experiment. Dr. Miller was a, a graduate student working on his Ph.D. degree under the tutelage of Dr. Urey, who is a very famous Nobel-winning prize chemist. And uh, here is a reenactment much later on with Dr. Uh, Miller with the apparatus that he used. And so the books always say this experiment showed that chemical evolution is possible because he succeeded in making amino acids in this experiment. And that statement is true. But as Paul Harvey said, here is the rest of the story. So let's give you the rest of the story. So he put these gases into this chamber, this spark chamber, and it's ammonia is the first one, methane is the second one, hydrogen, carbon dioxide, which you hear so much about, today, and water vapor. So these gases he put into the chamber. So he did that so that these would provide the necessary elements in order to be able to make amino acids. But the first problem that they don't tell you about is with the evolutionists assuming millions and billions of years, they don't tell you that these first two, ammonia and methane, will be decomposed by ultraviolet light from the sun that ultraviolet light will break down those molecules and they won't still be available. So this is the first problem in terms of the evolutionary time frame, is that those two will not remain intact. The second problem is he greatly, greatly increased the concentration of hydrogen. 
in his experiment. The amount of hydrogen in the atmosphere is next to zilch. Why? Because it's so light, Earth's gravity doesn't hang on to it in our atmosphere and it goes into outer space. So if we want to have hydrogen gas, we produce it by using electricity to break down water molecules to produce oxygen and hydrogen. That's how we obtain hydrogen gas. Because you're not going to be able to get it by trying to concentrate hydrogen in the atmosphere. It's just not there because it's so light. That's why it was used for these uh, dirigibles, you know, back in the 1920s and 30s when, the, you know, the Graf Zeppelin, the Germany's, Germans made that uh, huge uh, blimp dirigible, and then when it got to Lakehurst, New Jersey, kaboom, it exploded. So it, that's what was used to hold the airship. So that's the second problem. Okay, hydrogen is not in elemental form, in gas form, because it's so light. Uh, this is just to show you that the percentage of the different gases in the atmosphere, they don't even list hydrogen because there's just so minuscule amount of it as it escapes gravity. Our oxygen and <coughs> nitrogen make up 99% of the atmosphere. It's so light, okay, it escapes into space. Okay, the third issue is he excluded atmospheric oxygen. In other words, the molecule, O2, two atoms of oxygen to make a molecule. That's because being a good chemist, he knew that if, if oxygen was present in that form, it would combine with the amino acids that he did succeed in making and render them useless. So he understood he had to keep oxygen as, as a gas out of that. That's why the water and the carbon dioxide were provided was to provide oxygen through those molecules rather than the atmospheric oxygen. Okay, so renders it useless. And then this shows which amino acids he actually succeeded in making. The ones in gray are ones that we have in our bodies, in our proteins. The ones that are in white are other amino acids. Okay. So out of the carbon that he supplied uh, in that experiment, about less than 2% of it was actually used to make the amino acids in his experiment. But this could only happen with no oxygen present in terms of elemental molecular oxygen. So he assumed that there would be no oxygen in Earth's early atmosphere. And so the evolutionists in general, understanding this, all assumed that the original atmosphere of Earth had no oxygen. However, when they look at the geologic record, as this article here is uh, allowing, with the rocks capturing oxygen, they and with their assumptions of the evolutionary time frame, they say, oh, whoops, well, guess what? Oxygen really was here in the early atmosphere. So oxygen is an insoluble problem for the evolutionists. And they established this by drilling holes, uh, uh, cores in the uh, layers of rock under the ocean, which they assumed to be from those ancient times uh, which didn't exist 
and said, oh, yeah, there is oxygen in this supposed early time frame. Well, if you don't have oxygen in the atmosphere, that uh, causes a whole other different problem. Um, I th you may remember that in the past few decades, there's been this big issue about the ozone layer, over, especially over Antarctica, and that with the different gases that we've been using for refrigerants, uh, like for vehicles or refrigerators, the, the carbon and the fluorine and um, freon-type stuff, that uh, it destroys the ozone atmosphere layer uh, in the stratosphere. So the ozone is a protective layer that does protect us from radiation from the sun uh, so that we don't have so much in the way of skin cancer, things like that, especially here in Arizona. So the ozone layer is necessary, and ozone is made up of molecules of three atoms of oxygen. So oxygen is necessary to protect things on Earth from solar radiation. And I would guess that more than one of you has dealt with an episode of skin cancer here. I've already had two episodes myself. And that's because of the solar radiation and how the ultraviolet light breaks the DNA in our cells. So what happens here is you see the, the ozone protecting the Earth there. And then without the ozone, the DNA is broken and we end up being crispy critters. See. So the problem for the evolutionists is that life cannot start spontaneously with oxygen because the oxygen would combine with the amino acids made and life cannot start spontaneously without oxygen because of the protection it provides in the ozone layer. So either way, we win. All right, so this is another one of those great problems that you don't hear about. Well, in order to drive the reaction forward, the uh, use of uh, spark plugs embedded in the chamber there to simulate lightning, to provide energy to cause the molecules to react and not just sit there. So Dr. Miller used uh, electrical discharge, compared them to lightning, saying, okay, this is how this thing could work. Well, a condenser in a trap now, there you see there, there's that, where it says condenser with that darker blue wrap around the uh, tubing. Cold water was, was used there to cool that down to bring those amino acids made out of the chamber and put them down into the trap in the bottom. And that was to, in uh, order to what? Protect them from being hit again by the lightning, or in this case, the spark plugs, sparks, so that they wouldn't be destroyed. So the energy from the sparks that created the molecules could destroy them as well. So that's why a condenser and trap were used. Well, out there in that primordial state, there's no condenser and trap. Further discharges could destroy those molecules. Well, so what did he succeed in making? Lots of tar. And so here you see a picture of tar. Uh, a lot of tar, about 80% of what was made in the experiment was tar and formic acid. And so what you see at the bottom, that's a representation of the molecule of formic acid. Okay, imagine 
everybody here at one time or another has been stung by an ant. And it really does sting, doesn't it? That's because the ant is injecting formic acid into you as you are bitten. Okay, that's the word where formic comes from because in Latin, ant is formica. Okay, so that's formic acid. So none of that is conducive to life. Okay, so tar is certainly not conducive to life and neither is formic acid. Well, so what was actually made in terms of the amino acids that, that were made? Most of them, these two very simple ones, called alanine and glycine. Well, about half of the amino acids in our body are soluble in water, and about the other half are soluble in fat or oil. Well, almost the huge percentage of the ones that were made were, were the ones that are fat-soluble. So it's very much the wrong ratio of water and fat-soluble amino acids that were produced. Okay, so these are examples below that blue lines of those that are water-soluble, and those were not made in his experiment. Next problem is this business of handedness. So if you put your two hands together like this, they're the same, but they're mirror images. And when you put them together like this, you can see that they don't match. You, that's why we say left and right handed, because they're the opposite direction. Well, organic molecules have handedness as well. Right and left handed molecules. And the amino acids in our, in our proteins, our structural proteins, are all left handed amino acids, every one of them. experiment, half of the amino acids were left-handed and half were right-handed because of the random nature. And so that is another problem that these amino acids would not be able to combine to make a protein molecule because of the handedness. We only use left-handed amino acids in our structural proteins. And here's another way of seeing that they are mirror images of each other. This is a whole bunch of problems, isn't it? Well, but there's more than just amino acids that are needed. If, if somehow the amino acids were able to combine to make protein molecules, well, they need to be in a protected environment. All of our cells have membranes that decide, that maintain what is inside the cell and what stays outside the cell. Well, these type of membranes can form from very complicated molecules, which you see here, that large uh, white thing in the middle there with some red and yellow and black. That's the type of molecule that makes up the, the membranes. But all it does is provide the barrier. It doesn't do anything about controlling things getting in and out. And so instead, what we need is this very complicated thing called the cell that has all sorts of different proteins in the membrane of the cell that regulate what gets in and out of the cell. Plus, there are many, many other structures, components of the cell that all have very specialized tasks. The phrase simple cell is um, ridiculous. 
the cell is anything but simple. It's as complicated as the biggest metropolitan area in the world, even more complicated. There's no such thing as a simple cell. And of course, where would the explanation be for all of this other stuff to come into being? Well, they talk about the primordial soup here, all right, that this is where the first life began. But in this primordial soup, what stops other molecules from interacting with the amino acids that are made? And the answer is nothing. So even if you got all left-handed amino acids and you got the right amounts of water and fat-soluble amino acids, how would you keep them from not combining with other stuff other than each other? Well, on top of all that, intelligent input was needed. Dr. Miller, being a very intelligent graduate student at the time, had to do a lot of thinking to put this uh, experiment together. This didn't happen by random chance. So he says, if I can just synthesize life here, then I'll have proven that no intelligence was necessary to form life in the beginning. All right, so this, this cartoon uh, dates back uh, about 50 years. So you see just glassware and tubing. So here's the modern updated version of the cartoon with the computers and the monitors, same caption. If I can just synthesize life here, then I've proven that no intelligence was necessary to form life in the beginning. Okay, see, it's, it's very ironic, very ironic. So in summary, no oxygen in life is a problem because, again, of the lack of protection from the solar radiation and you end up with the crispy critters. And let me mention again that the rocks show that the indeed atmosphere, as they interpret the rocks, the early atmosphere, was there. And so here we see, for example, in the Grand Canyon, these reddish colored rocks because there's oxygen in those molecules that make up those rocks. So life cannot start spontaneously with oxygen and without oxygen, as we said. So that's strike one. These are the big strikes, not the small strikes we talked about earlier. What type of amino acids did Miller get? The wrong kinds and lots of tar and toxins. That's strike two. And then did DNA or life actually even just proteins start in the oceans? And the answer is no. And the evolutionists themselves are saying no today after, after almost 100 years of saying yes because they understand that water breaks down DNA, breaks down proteins, they dissolve. Hydrolysis means water breakdown. So there's strike three. So now you ask an evolutionist where did life start according uh, to the way they're thinking. And now they say DNA crystals in clay. So they're getting pushed back into a more and more ridiculous corner as the actual information evidence shows that they are indeed out of the game. Well, we go back to Genesis. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. So here we have the answer. All right.
That's that question. Okay, we'll go on to the third question. Where did the Cambrian explosion come from? Well, what is the Cambrian explosion? Is it a big bomb? And the answer is no. But it's the sudden appearance of multicellular forms, many different forms of, of life in the oceans, where before in the lower rock layer there was none of this. And all of a sudden there appears in the rock layers in the fossil record this huge amount of very different animal and plant forms. So that's called, that's why it's called an explosion, the sudden appearance, and it's called Cambrian because that's the name of the layer of rock because it was first found, first noticed in the part of Great Britain that we call Wales, W-A-L-E-S, Wales, uh, and the old Latin name for Wales was Cambria. So that's why it's called the Cambrian Explosion. So here you see this multitude of different forms. And here is the representation showing the supposed geological column with the rock layers. And Cambria is just above that blue line there. And that's the layer in which these were found, these various uh, multicellular life forms. And these do not have uh, spinal cords. So they're called invertebrates, not having vertebra, not having spinal uh, vertebra, bones in the spine. All right, so then the layers below that are called pre-Cambrian, before the Cambrian layer, and in there all sorts of one-celled organisms are found. All right, so this column is represented by diagrams such as this, uh, saying that this is the way things happened. And there's this deposition of these organisms as you go from bottom to top, from less complex to more complex. This is the way it's represented by the evolutionists. So the question I have here is, where is this column seen here on this slide? Where is this found in the world? Anybody have the answer? No? One more chance. You got it. Textbooks and posters. That's exactly correct. That is where this is found. Not in real life. Because in real life, there is this nice progression, it gets jumbled. Different layers appear in different orders, or layers are missing. So in real life, this doesn't happen. Just in the textbooks and posters. So there is a general progression of deposition of these, but it's not because of evolution with time changing, causing this to happen. It's due to <coughs> ecological zones. In other words, things that lived in the ocean before the flood lived in the bottom of the ocean were buried first. Things that lived mid-ocean next. Things that lived at the top of the ocean next. Coastal things next. Inland things last. That's one thing is the ecological zones. Another would be the mobility, the ability of the critter to avoid being buried until it was inevitable. In other words, the whole earth wasn't covered immediately. It took, it took 
uh, time, several weeks, for everything to finally be covered. And so as water was moving around back and forth, for a period of time, critters and people had a chance to try and escape, and then finally uh, they couldn't. And then once everything was buried, and lots of earthquakes and everything being very mushy and wet at the time, uh, what's called liquefaction, shaking from the earthquakes would cause things to settle, depending upon the size, the shape, and the density of the organism. So there's lots of contributing factors. And so what the flood did was compress over a half billion years into the one-year flood process of 371 days. So that's why the evolutionists deny a global flood, whether they be secular evolutionists or people who claim to be Christians who say God used evolution, either way, deny a global flood because that global flood compresses this over half billion years into the one year process of the flood and destroys evolutionary time frame. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind. So that's the explanation for how things got into the ocean. And we have, and Pastor and I had this discussion yesterday. Uh, by the way, uh, do you guys have a clue how blessed you are to have a pastor who actually understands and tunes into this? Because the great, great majority of churches don't have such pastors. You guys are blessed. So uh, most often the discussion is about the sixth day of creation week, but he points out correctly it's really the seven days because of the day of rest as well. But often the discussion is about the, the working six days, not counting the day of rest. So on the fifth day then was the, the creation of the creatures of the, of the sea and of the sky, and on the sixth day the land animals and man. So there we are for the ocean critters. And then in Genesis 7:11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the seven, second month, the 17th day of the month, how specific is that? On that day, all the foundations of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. So the rains began and the flood occurred and then things got buried. But, but we have to remember it's the created kinds. And so it's, it, the concept you need to have is the creation orchard or the creation forest with these various kinds. For example, if it be like the cat kind, the dog kind, the bear kind, the horse kind, the cow kind, the antelope kind, etc. So it's estimated from the fossil record that about 95% of all the pre-flood species became extinct. And then after the ark, the animals came off, and we'll be talking about this later and then more species were formed. All right, so that deals with that issue. Now the next one is where did dinosaurs come from? Now we're not gonna talk about dinosaurs in general, but just where did they come from? All right, Ralph, just sit down, listen to me, and look for that thing later. 
So you see the kid is looking for the meaty inside. The kid inside, and the dinosaur is looking for the kid inside the meaties. Okay. All right. So where did dinosaurs come from? Well, here is an evolutionary artist's depiction showing all these lines, showing how the various kinds of dinosaurs came from some common ancestors, which came from an ultimately common ancestor, blah, blah, blah. Well, <coughs> that's not really an honest depiction of what the actual fossil evidence shows. This evolutionary artist was more honest by not coloring in all the connections, saying here are the various kinds, but we don't really know how they connect. Okay, so there, there is no series of transitional fossils showing the change from one kind to another kind. Those transitions don't exist. They're just not there. But this in, inadvertently reinforces the concept of biblical kinds, the separate kinds. And it's estimated there's probably some 30, maybe a few more kinds of dinosaurs. Well, we have in Scripture with not inspired by the Holy Spirit footnotes. In other words, these are man's corrupted thoughts inserted under the Scripture. And so they're saying, well, here in, in chapter 40 of Job, talking about uh, behemoth, a land critter, land dinosaur, terrestrial dinosaur. They're saying, oh, maybe elephant, uh, maybe hippopotamus, uh, but that's man's corrupted thoughts. Unfortunately, very popular uh, Bible editions such as the Schofield promoted this tremendously a hundred years ago. So here again is this concept of kinds, biblical kinds, the different kinds of dinosaurs living in that lush subtropical uh, climate prior to the flood on the ark, two of each kind on the ark, and then at different time periods becoming extinct after the flood. All right, so here is the ark there carrying them across. And so then we have here in 125, God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, which would be the dinosaurs in, in the beast category, cattle according to the, its kind, the domestic animals, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. So these would be the other things that are not domestic animals or the big beasts. So this was on day six. So that's where the dinosaurs came from. And you see the picture of man and dinosaurs in day six there. So that's where dinosaurs came from. That's the answer right there. What about information? Okay, information is an abstract thing. It's not concrete. So let's talk about where it came from. So scientific de definitions must be precise, exact, very clear, including all the attributes that distinguish it from the other entity and excluding everything that does not have, uh, that lacks even just one of the attributes of what it is you are defining. So for example, if I give you this definition of firm, round fruit of a small tree with a central core, red, green, or yellow skin, and white or yellow flesh. 
So you have some options here. And you say, well, okay, we have to eliminate this one. It's not round. Okay, we have to eliminate this one. It doesn't come from a tree. It comes from a vine. Okay, we have to eliminate this one. It's the wrong color. And this one doesn't have a core. So what does that leave? The apple. So that's how we have to have clear definitions. Well, here are some examples of bad definitions. Change over time. That's a real popular definition for evolution. Change over time. Does that really exclude anything? The answer is no. Okay, since you walked in here almost an hour ago, you have changed over time. But are you evolving? No. Okay, different definition. Genetic change in a species over time. Well, that's more specific, but is it still too vague? And the answer is yes. Because, for example, we can do breeding and get selected information by breeding, but that's not evolution. Okay, that's simply causing uh, breeds within a species. So that doesn't work. So what works in all cases that would cover biological and technological systems? Well, crazy uh, definition that has been put forth. Information is everything. Well, again, does that exclude anything? And the answer is no, it's not valid. How about another recent definition? Coded systems with or without meaning. Well, okay, they're getting a little bit closer to something that might be useful, but if you get these random assemblies that have no meaning, you get something like this. Instead of, hello, how are you? You get, why? Okay, so that is not useful and not universal. So let's talk about what actually goes into real information. First of all, code. And there's many, many different kinds of code. So we have hieroglyphics, Chinese, computer codes, Armenian, Georgian, or English alphabets. So for example, here is hieroglyphics. Okay, this would be computer code, ones and zeros. All right, here is uh, what's called the kanji, the Chinese written language. And this is actually a, a compound use of that code. The part on the left-hand side refers to a nonspecific vessel, container. The bottom right refers to a mouth. And then the top right refers to the number eight. So we put those three things together. What does that bring to mind? Eight mouths and a vessel. Noah's Ark, absolutely. So even in the Chinese language, even though the knowledge has largely been forgotten in that nation, there are biblical principles embedded in that written language from Genesis. Okay, here is the Armenian alphabet. And I love it. It's beautiful. I, I've been to Armenia twice, taught there in a seminary, and so I, I, I learned the alphabet so I could at least read the signs. And uh, uh, it's fun. And this is the Georgian 
alphabet. Georgia, not U.S. Georgia, but Georgia over by the east side of the Black Sea, south of Russia, north of Turkey. To me, it looks like SpaghettiOs. Uh, then we have the definition here. So a code is a rule for converting letters, words, phrases, or symbols into something meaningful. I got to have the meaning. So one reason for coding is to enable communication. Okay, Pastor Ralph, I want you to read this uh, using your English, Latin. Okay, just read it, please. No, no, pronounce it as, a, as English. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, very good. It kind of sounds like one of these critters from Star Wars, doesn't it? Okay. Uh you are correct, it is actually Russian, and it says, which means, having looked at the restaurant above, she knows that window well. <laughs> okay, so you have to have the right code, which means you have to have a decoder. So the recipient of the code has to have a decoder. Okay, I said, so that was one reason uh, was to transmit information. The second reason is to to have a code is to hide information, right? So here we have a different code. Juan siente en mi coche rojo y maneje a la escuela. Okay, John, sit in my car, red car, and drive to school. Okay, we used the Navajos in World War II, uh, as Marines, they had to be fully qualified otherwise as a Marine first. And so the Navajo language was used as a code, but they made a code within a code. So for example, the Navajo word for butterfly was used to represent a helicopter, or the Navajo word for fish for a torpedo, see, and on like that. So the Japanese never, ever, ever broke that code. It saved zillions of lives. Because these guys were transmitting uh, extremely important information, uh, coordinating uh, activity. So the code then allows to, for meaning to be transmitted. So words have meanings. For example, we have the word logo. So there is AC for Arizona Christian University, where I am a professor. Building, this is the original control tower when it was first built as a training airfield to train pilots for World War II. And sweatshirts, which we don't need today. All right, so these words convey meaning. So code is used to convey meaning. So meaning enables communication by associating words, 
phrases or symbols to create to real objects. That leads to the third component, which is the expected action, implicit or explicit request or command for a given performance. So the expected action is study and learn as much as you possibly can. So here we see students madly reading their textbooks, right? Maybe. All right. That leads to the fourth component, intended purpose, anticipated outcome or goal achieved by performance of the expected actions. And that is get a job you love, intended purpose of the result, graduate, go on to medical school and become a pediatrician and then study subspecialty of pediatric cardiology. This was my first student to graduate to accept, be accepted into medical school. All right. So it's code, meaning, expected action, intended purpose. These are the four components of information. Originally, this was put together uh, by Dr. Werner Gitt, who at the time was the chief of uh, the biggest, the most important physics uh, research facility in Germany. And he wrote the book, In the Beginning Was Information. So there, whoops, there we go. So the total thing, an encoded, symbolically represented message conveying expected action for an intended purpose. This is a great definition of information. Well, there's some things that flow out of this. Information cannot originate by random chance statistical processes. Cannot. And yet, what does evolution tell us? Time plus chance equals information. But it doesn't. That's what they tell us. They say time is the hero of the plot. Given enough time, the impossible becomes improbable, the improbable becomes uh, possible, and then it uh, finally happens. So that is not a true statement, but that's what they say all the time. That's why they demand so much time, because they know it's so impossible. Okay, have you all seen Independence Day? Fun, fun movie. Aliens come, this is a spaceship. And the opening scene in the movie is this guy sitting at this bank of monitors uh, waiting to hear for a signal from E.T. out there, extraterrestrial. And uh, he finally does. That's how the movie starts. Well, uh, some decades ago, the U.S. government, at your taxpayer expense, built a series of these arrays of radio telescopes. So here in western New Mexico, not all that far from the Arizona border, is this facility here, and you see this um, three-legged uh, arrangement of these telescopes, and each telescope is huge. You can see the ladders there, and on that left-hand telescope, there's a person on the top of the platform. That's how big these things are. Yeah. Um, This? Nope. 
Okay, well, I'll just point. So right there, that's the person. Okay, so that gives you a clue. We're okay. That gives you a clue as to, thank you, how huge these things are. And we have several of these installations around the world. There's one in uh, Puerto Rico, uh, another one in uh, Western Australia, and I don't know where the others are. And the purpose of building all these arrays of radio telescopes was to listen for a radio signal from ET. Because these people believe, and yeah, you paid for this. Don't laugh. Because <coughs> these people believe so strongly in evolution happening, and that evolution would be not just here, but elsewhere. And that's why there's ET out there. So here's a quote from one of the scientists involved with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That's what the SETI is. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. In other words, intelligence is out there, not on our planet. And as any day now, we'll pick up a tiny coded signal. Then we'll know for certain that there is intelligence out there because coded information does not arise by chance. A true statement. But here is showing how schizophrenic they are. So they're saying that coded information does not arise by chance. Yet, DNA, the basis of life, is coded information. And it, as they say, cannot arise by chance. But yet they believe it did in evolution. See how schizophrenic that is? Split mind. Okay, the other thing is information can only originate from an intelligent sender. Because matter cannot give rise to information. It can only arise from an intelligent sender. So here we have this cartoon here, NASA, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Better if we blocked our collar. <laughs> or if we blocked out our transmissions of our inane TV shows. Okay can only originate from an intelligent sender. So who is the source of information such as that found in incredibly complex DNA code? And I should say codes. It's the eternal God of the Bible. Or is it eternal information in matter? And it's the God of the Bible imparting that information. Okay, and then as we mentioned the business, uh, before that codes result from an intentional choice and agreement between sender and receptor so that the decoder actually works to decode the code. Third law is information is necessary in order to convey ideas such as, as you know this formula here, energy equals mass times the speed of sound squared to create technology I love railroads, and to create works of art. Another corollary is that any given chain of information can be traced back to an intelligent source. 
So here we see, for example, the modern Russian alphabet. All right, well, that comes from what was called Old Church Slavonic. So that would be to modern Russian like Latin is to Spanish or Portuguese or French or Italian, Romanian. Okay, so that derived from Greek, which then from Phoenician, and then from Semitic, which goes back to ancient Hebrew. So there's that chain back to the intelligent source. Well, the amazing thing is DNA also not only is 4 billion times more compact than this 500 gigabyte chip, it can reproduce itself. <laughs> so, the genetic information system is the software of life. And like the symbols in the computer, it is purely symbolic and independent of its environment. The genetic message is non-material, but must be recorded in matter and energy. So we have to use matter and energy to store information, but it does not give rise to information. The information has to come from the intelligent being. So there it is. It has to come from the intelligent being. So it doesn't matter how we record it. <laughs> whether it's engraved in stone, <coughs> printed on paper, smoke signals. It's from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It says your calls are very important to us. <laughs> Chalk on board. This is a molecule called lignin. This is what makes wood hard. The more lignin in the wood, the harder it is. Have you all ever tried to cut an ironwood tree? You'll dull your saw. There it is, ironwood tree in bloom. Beautiful. Or placed on a hard disk of the computer. Or in DNA. Okay, five billion times more compact. So here is a representation of the molecules that code in DNA. And what's amazing is we're using this now in non-biological systems to be the most efficient storage of information in existence. They're creating artificial DNA molecules to store information. It's amazing. So information is recorded in matter, but it does not arise from matter itself. It doesn't matter how it's recorded. It must arise from an intelligent source and not matter. Evolutionists have never been able to refute these laws. They cannot come from purely material sources. They can't solve this problem. So the improbably great amount of information which DNA contains, along with its specificity, the simultaneous creation of the DNA itself, the protein systems necessary to carry out the DNA's instructions and thousands of other components. You've got to have all this stuff. This cannot have happened by random chance events. And a machine is required. Machinery is required to carry out the instructions of the DNA. Well, here's an analogy. 
that in terms of written information start out with a feather, a quill from a bird with ink, and then to a manual typewriter, then to an electric typewriter, and then to a keyboard, and now to this very laptop here. Okay, so this is the evolution of the writing machine. But it took intelligence. This didn't happen by random chance events, and anybody who's worked with computers will tell you random chance stuff creates garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. So these machines, which I just showed you, required designs. They required intelligence. Well, this is all encapsulates this concept of irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. So this mousetrap is a very common uh, example given. There's five components to the mousetrap that are absolutely necessary. The cheese is expendable. It's not part of the mousetrap. So you can get rid of the cheese and it'll still work, maybe more slowly, but it'll still work. But get rid of any other one of these pieces and you just have a pile of junk. So this system is no longer able to be reduced. All of these parts have to be there in the right place, in the right order, to function. Take that away and you have garbage. Well, it's the same thing with DNA. So you need proteins. You need DNA, you need RNA in order to be able to make RNA, the messenger type of RNA. There's many, there's over 30 kinds of RNA. You need proteins, you need RNA, messenger type, the transfer RNA and the what's called ribosomal RNA and the proteins in order to be able to make proteins. You need proteins, you need DNA, and you need RNA to make DNA. These are irreducibly complex systems. You need all of these things all of the time in the right place at the right order, the right amounts for the systems to function. This cannot have evolved. This had to be created by the greatest intelligence in the universe, the God of the Bible. It's a problem. They cannot solve this problem. So here is where a synthetic cell has been created. They used a computer. They assembled a big team. And then they transplanted it into a recipient cell. They, they made synthetic DNA, put it in a cell. It says, we built a DNA chromosome from scratch from four bottles of chemicals, meaning the four molecules that make the four codes. Well, the problem with this is they think they've figured out it all, and they can create a cell without God. But God says to the scientists, you go first. The scientists, okay, shuffle their DNA. At this point, God interjects, wait, oh no, that's my cell. Get your own cell. All right. In other words, they can't do it. So great is the Lord, and mighty in power, his understanding is infinite. All right. That's the end of the first session, so we take a, a break. And then uh, if you do have questions, I'll answer them. Here the dog is saying to the, mat, to the mistress, and you see the dogs in the flying saucers. Well, they finally came. But before I go, let's see you roll over a couple times and answer questions. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? 
We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.